Thanks, Danny. Welcome all. Uh, great to have you along this morning. If you're new or visiting, a special welcome to you. My name's Tim, and I'm one of the pastors here at Wagga Evangelical Church. So keep your Bibles open in that space. That's where we're going to be heading quickly, though. Youth Church, it is your chance to head out. So if you're in years five to eight, you can head out with... Who's with? Mike and Rob? Is that you making a move? Yep, beauty. Uh, the rest of us, let's stick in. Uh, keep your Bibles open in that space. I'll pray, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll kick on. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do come with many expectations about you. Um, we come with all sorts of thoughts that have been formed over a, a long time of life experience. And yet we acknowledge, Father, that um, you are who you are. You say, you say you are. And so we acknowledge right now that there is a sense in which we may have come to put wrong expectations on you. And so we ask that you would shape um, these now. Uh, help us to uh, adapt or adopt or abandon any expectations we have that don't match who you revealed yourself to be. And we pray this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, you'll notice that hopefully you've got an outline as you come in. In your outline, there's some, uh, some text there or a little bit of a sermon outline uh, for you to follow along. And, and I've sort of titled this Expectations and Excuses. And I think that's a really helpful sort of way to, to frame this because of the human propensity to misuse both in relationships. I mean, just think about this for a minute. Really, we are experts in loading unfair and unreasonable expectations onto others, aren't we? We are experts at that. It comes naturally and easily. And along with that, we are also experts at excusing our own failures and our own shortcomings in relation to expectations as often as necessary. Now, am I the only person who thinks that? Am I the only person who recognises that in themselves? Expectations and excuses, I'm full of them. <laughs> And the funny thing is, it's not just in human relationships that this, uh, this happens, but as a humanity, we do this with God as well. We come with all sorts of expectations and excuses. And I want to demonstrate to you this morning, in fact, I want to start by demonstrating the power and the problem of expectations as it relates to God. What I mean by that is, every single person has a concept of God. That is, an all-powerful divine being or beings Everyone has this concept of a God notion. But what makes the big difference, if you like, between a theist, that is someone who believes in the actual reality of this divine being, and an atheist, someone who rejects the reality of this divine being, is their expectations. Now, do you get that? Let me say that again. The biggest difference between a theist and an atheist often comes down to their individual expectations of God. Now, these expectations, I'll grant you, and these misalignments and expectations, they can happen for all sorts of reasons on all sorts of issues. But I want to just sharpen up, for, to begin with, a very common example as it relates to expectations of God and the problem of evil and suffering in the world. You have heard this before, perhaps. It goes something like this. Statement one, if the God of the Bible is all-powerful, he would be able to prevent evil and suffering. Is that true or is it false? Statement two, if the God of the Bible is all-knowing, he would be able, sorry, he would be aware when evil and suffering happen. Is that true or false? Statement three, if the God of the Bible is all-loving, then he wouldn't want even evil and suffering to happen and would take necessary action to stop it. Is that true or false? Statement four, evil and suffering presently exist true or false 
And if you agree to all those statements, therefore we must conclude that the all-powerful, all-knowing and all-loving God of the Bible doesn't exist. Have you heard that kind of logic before? Have you heard that kind of attempt to prove or disprove the existence of God? I mean, just look through those statements again. It seems pretty tight, doesn't it? It does seem that if you agree with each of those first four statements, then you must also agree with the conclusion, otherwise you would be in contradiction. That's worrying. <laughs> Seems to unrattle and, and, and sort of disturb us a little bit. But before I point out the logical flaw, it's in statement three, by the way, there is a logical fallacy here. There is an unex, uh, inappropriate expectation loaded in there. Just in, before, in fact, just one word will flip this on its head. Before we get there, I just want you to realise how this kind of thinking is based on expectations about God. Expectations about who God is an expectation about how God's operate, how God operates. And if God does not meet these expectations, then it quickly becomes the obvious and best excuse to reject God outright. And many people do this all the time, based on many different but equally faulty or inappropriate expectations of God. This is not a new phenomenon, folks. This is not a modern-day enlightened experience. This has been happening since day dot. In fact, we're going to see it played out in our passage today and in Exodus at large with Moses, with Pharaoh, with the Israelites. This has been happening for three and a half thousand years. And the point I want you to see is that not that there, we shouldn't have expectations of God, no, but we need to have right expectations of God. We need to have right expectations of God about who he is and how he operates and that's what we're aiming to do today. So think through your expectations and hold them up to, to the word of God and see if, they, um, see if they hold up. Now up front, I want you to have a look in your outlines there because there's a couple of ideas we're going to see coming uh, up over and over again all through Exodus. They're on your outlines. They're a bit chunky. We're not going to cover them all today, but I want to sort of have them there as, as, just so that you're in your head as we go through the series. The first is this, in terms of who God is, who is God? Well, God reveals himself as the exclusive and unique, powerful, relational and faithful God of all creation. It's the first thing we're going to see time and time again in this passage and in passages like this in Exodus. The second thing I want you to see is that in terms of how God operates, it's that God always acts in line with his character but that may not always play out the way you'd like it to initially. And the third thing that we're going to see time and time again in terms of how humanity ought to respond to this God, it is that despite God's revealed majesty, his power, his faithfulness, his awesomeness, despite this, humanity is unable and unwilling to submit to God without his divine and direct help. Three things that we're going to see time and time again. Keep those points in, in your head. They're long, but we're going to come back to them. Over. We're not going to cover them all in depth today, but I want to start to show you how these work out in the text in front of us. So have a look there. In fact, I want us to start at Exodus 2 and see how it finishes with a distinct rising of expectation. I mean, let's be honest, there are expectations and hanging questions everywhere throughout the first couple of chapters of Exodus. I mean, who is this baby Moses? Why did God go to the big trouble of saving him from infanticide if he's just going to grow up to be a murderer, of him, a murderer himself and have to flee Egypt? What was the point of that? I mean, there's hanging questions everywhere. But look specifically at how the expectations are heightened again at the end of Exodus chapter 2. 
Look at it with me there, verses 23 uh, to 25. It says this, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help uh, because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now, do you hear that? God heard the groanings of the Israelite slaves. God remembered his covenant with Abraham from Genesis 12. In verse 25, it says God was concerned about them. He heard, he remembered, he was concerned. Do you see how that heightens expectations as we head into chapter 3? I mean, surely now God is about to act. I mean, if you were a movie maker, you would cue the ominous music at this point. You would dim the lights in the cinema for extra effect because God is apparently about to explode on the scene in Egypt and personally, miraculously, and immediately deliver his people from their evil oppressors. That's what we're expecting, isn't it? It's what we'd like to think God should do in this situation, isn't it? After all, he's so big and he's so powerful and apparently so caring for his people these people that he's made promises to you, mind, mind you, surely now is the time to bring out the big guns. It seems obvious and the easiest solution to free the Israelite slaves personally, miraculously, presently. Isn't that what you're thinking of too? But it's not what happens. You see, the truth is that God has heard, he has seen, He has not forgotten his covenant promises and he is concerned for his people, but he's got a much bigger rescue plan in mind than just the deliverance of Israel's slaves out of Egypt. He's got a much bigger plan in mind, a much, much bigger plan. In fact, it's a rescue plan so colossal in scope that it will have personal implications for every person who has ever lived, including you who are sitting here today. We'll get there. But it starts with this very peculiar yet intentional way. It starts by God revealing to Moses and reminding him key aspects of who he is so that Moses might have right expectations of him too. So what does God reveal to to Moses about himself in this famous section of the burning bush? What do we learn about who God is from this experience? Can I say, and this is a general principle to always keep in mind, What we learn about God has more to do with what God says than what Moses sees. Do you understand that? That is a general principle to take into life. If you want to understand about God, take notice of what God says rather than what you see. In fact, let's read a little bit from the passage and and realize what does God say about himself. Have a look, Exodus 3, 1 to 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses thought that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not, why the bush does not burn up. It's a reasonable response from Moses, don't you think? It's a strange sight to notice a bush on fire but not being consumed. In fact, it should be called the story of the not burning bush. Anyway, that's another story. 
But notice and pay specific attention to what God says as Moses approaches this strange phenomenon. First thing that God says, he reinforces his holiness. Look at it there, verse 5. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, this is, poor, this is important, folks. This is the first thing that God is letting Moses and us know up front. It's his holiness. He's letting Moses know up front that to approach him is not a casual affair. He's not catching up with your long-lost favourite uncle. It's not even a formal affair like meeting a prime minister or a monarch. No, this God is holy. It means that he is entirely distinct from anything and everything else in creation. He is exclusively unique and you only approach him at his request and only in the manner he deems reasonable. So in this case, Moses, take off your shoes. God is holy, folks. First thing that that God reveals to Moses. The second thing he reveals to him about himself is his his historical and relational connection to Moses. Did you notice that in verse 6? It's the very next thing he says. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, this is massive significant, folks. This is huge. This God who has perhaps to Moses to this point seemed distant and remote, he's now having a, a personal experience with the historical God who had a personal relationship with his ancestors. This is massive. The only thing that Moses can think to do at this moment is hide his face because he's immediately and understandably overwhelmed and afraid by this occasion. And yet, by the fact that God has revealed himself by his historical and relational connection to Moses, this actually should be of great confidence for Moses because what's God reminding him here? What's God reminding him here by invoking those names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God's reminding him that he is a covenantal God. He's reminding him of his ancestral connections to those who God has made promises to. In fact, we've mentioned it already, but it's going to be a constant reference point all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, these covenant promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Check them out later for yourself, but let me paraphrase them again. God enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham and says that he promises to bless to bless his family and extend it beyond number, the ability to count. He promises to establish this people in their own land, and he promises to bless all nations through them. This is who God is. A covenantal God, historical, relational. And in fact, this is exactly what God reminds Moses of at this point in our passage. Have a look there at verses 7 and 8. It's what he says next. The Lord said... I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Who's God? What is God reminding of uh, Moses of? He's reminding him of his covenant promises. He has seen, he has heard, he is concerned and he has now determined to act to rescue his people and fulfill the promises to Abraham 
by bringing them up into their own spacious, fertile land. This, friends, friends, this is good news. In fact, Moses will be beside himself with excitement at this point. I mean, just to, again, summarise really quickly, God revealed himself to Moses, holy, completely other, historical, relational, covenantal, that means promise-making and promise-keeping, and he's just confirmed his intention to rescue his people. That's good news. But can I just stop here for a moment and point out something? It's the fact that God has not changed on any of these points. Do you realise that, friends? The God that we worship here at WEC, the God of the Bible, he is the one true and living God, holy and distinct as creator from all the rest of creation, yet relational and faithful, a promise maker and a promise keeper, concerned and determined to rescue his people against all that stand against them. And I say this at this point here because just as for Moses, just as he revealed these characteristics of God, God revealed them from his own mouth no less, they ought shape our expectations of God and how we anticipate that he will act. But we need to be very careful here. We need to be very careful that our expectations and anticipations of God or about God don't stray and become imposed obligations that we place upon God. And do you understand what I mean by this? It's important that you do, because it's the mistake that Moses and Israel make time and time again. And if we're honest, it's the mistake that we make time and time again. Let me say it differently. It's the mistake of hearing who God is powerful, relational, faithful, promise-making and promise-keeping. And rather than celebrating these truths and seeking to understand these truths with deeper clarity so we can continue to trust these truths about God's character, whatever circumstance we're in, however God determines to keep these promises, instead we take these truths about God's character and we fashion how we think he ought act on our behalf. This is how I'd like him to act as a response. This is how I'd like him to fulfill those promises. And then we prescribe and project these preferential expectations onto God and then assume we can hold him accountable to them. Effectively, we reverse the roles of us and God. Do you understand this problem? It's kind of what we see played out here by Moses. Because there's no doubt that Moses wants God to act to rescue the Israelites. No doubt about that. But he doesn't want to act in the way that God proposes. We see that next. We see it because Moses likes what he hears when God says in chapter 8, So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out to their own spacious good land. Oh, Moses likes that. Yeah, that's that's an idea I can get on board with God. Let's do that but doesn't like the means by which God has chosen to bring about this result. Have a look at verse 10. What does he say next? God says to Moses, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Wait, what? Me? (laughs) Go to Pharaoh? No, No, I don't think so. That's not what I was expecting. That's not a good idea. And so from verse 11, we get the excuses starting. As Moses comes up with all the possible reasons he can think of of why God's plans to use him to rescue Israel just isn't that good. In fact, let's check them out one at a time. What does Moses come up with? Excuse number one, verse 11. Read it with me. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring up the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, humanly speaking, Moses makes a pretty good point here. I mean, 
Let's think about this. Let's consider the facts. Moses is at this point in his life about 80 years old. We learn this from uh, chapter 7, verse 7. He's an old man. He's been 40 years shepherding in the desert on the lamb and on the lamb, if you understand what I mean. Not only that, Moses is, he is he's a fugitive from Egypt. He's wanted on a murder charge. That could be a problem. And though while he once was effectively part of the former Pharaoh's household as the adopted son of the Pharaoh's daughter, that's where we read he grew up his first 40 years. The time of his potential to influence the Pharaoh's decisions, that's long gone. Who am I, says Moses? That's his first excuse. And he's got a point, hasn't he? Who is he? Well, his point fails. In fact, it doesn't work. Because as God responds, it's not about Moses. It's about who God is. See, God's simple response underlines this. Verse 12, what does he say to him? Very simply, I will be with you. It's not about you, Moses. It's about me. Well, Moses quickly changes tact. In fact, this quite ni- nicely leads to excuse two. Who are you? <laughs> Who are you? In fact, look at it there. Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now, God's response here is just, it is mind-blowing because here God reveals his personal name to Moses, something that he didn't reveal to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. He reveals his personal name, and his personal name is a verb, a doing word. His name is I am. Wow, there's so much that can be said here. Hopefully, if you're in a Bible study, you've got to flesh this out a little bit more during the week. So let me just make a couple of quick comments about the significance of God's revealed name as I am, or Yahweh, as it most likely sounds in Hebrew. Who are you? asks Moses. I am, says God. What does this mean? Well, among the plethora of things that it means, it certainly means that God is, in and of himself, completely self-determining. It means he is pure reality. It means there is no comparison or category you could use to describe or define him Because if you did, it would automatically and inappropriately reduce and constrain him to what he is not. Try to use a comparison to describe God and then you've unhelpfully and inexcusably reduced him to what he's not. He is. That's his name. That's who's sending you, Moses, the great I am. We've got to keep moving to cover these verses, but just spend a bit of time thinking about that in the quiet. The fact that God's name is I am, see if that doesn't melt your brain in marvel at the implications. It ought. I am? Wow. But Moses is not done yet with the excuses. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 1. Excuse number 3. What if they don't believe me? I kind of feel like this objection has sort of been covered in the whole I am who I am answer. But in his great mercy, another spectacular characteristic of God, God gives Moses further comfort. He gives him the ability to perform three miraculous signs to prove the legitimacy of the mission that God is sending him on. You can read these signs, uh, 4 verse 4, a staff that changes into a snake and back to a staff. I like the depiction on the stage here. Uh, Chapter 4 verse 6, the appearing, disappearing leprosy hand. 
And in Psalm 3, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 9, the ability to change water from the Nile into blood. You can read them yourselves. But in other words, what is God doing here? He graciously gives Moses enough miraculous ammunition to persuade the Israelites that he is the real deal, that this is fair dinkum. And yet Moses is still resistant. And so he proceeds to excuse for which really, again, is just a return to excuse one. Read it with me. Chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Isn't this just a return to the who am I question again? As if Moses can't get it out of his head and he still thinks that it's going to be about the power of his performance and the power of his persuasion that will do the work. And again, it's with remarkable patience and grace that God reminds Moses of the first answer. Again, this is not about you, Moses. This is about me. In fact, God reminds him, verse 11 and 12, that it's God alone who determines whether someone can speak or see or hear. And besides, God himself will teach Moses what to say. He hasn't got an excuse left to stand on. Which is why he finally comes to excuse five. It's the real reason Moses is stalling here. It's because, well, simply, he just doesn't want to have to trust God. Have a look at verse 13. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please said someone else. Now, before you go sticking the boot into Moses for his faithless, gutless, inexcusable reluctance to obedience... Again, friends, do you not realize the same problem in yourself? And I'm speaking here, I'm speaking specifically to my Christian brothers and sisters here this morning, though the same could be said of, of you who are sitting on the fence, so to speak, about God. But to those who, like me, believe that God is as he has revealed himself to be in the Bible, that he does see, that he does hear, that he does care because he is both personal and relational, that he is all-powerful and that he has promised to deliver his people. And especially for us as Christians who have the historical advantage over Moses, that we have heard and have reason to be convinced that he's already fulfilled this promise to deliver from the biggest and the worst of enemies, slavery to sin and death through Jesus. I'm speaking to us who are convinced that Jesus is the same I am who spoke to Moses from the not-burning bush. People who are convinced that when Jesus says, I am, that's what he's getting at. Yet do we not also, like Moses, balk at obedience to God when it's inconvenient, when it's scary, when it's costly or confusing? Friends, do you not balk at God's plan to save people through the preaching of the gospel if it has to involve us in any way? Have you never experienced the same self-doubt as Moses? The same failure of continually relying on yourself rather than relying on God. The same defeatist idea that no one will believe you if you tell them of salvation through Jesus. The same false comfort that God really only uses people who are accomplished speakers. Or if we're brave enough to be totally real about it, the same sad acknowledgement that somewhere deep in our core, Often we just don't want to obey God. 
We just don't want to have to trust him through hard times, through relationship breakdowns, through work issues, through isolation and loneliness, through health crises, through financial woes, through bouts of depression, through months and months of looking for a third pastor to come and help share the gospel work in a thriving church, for example. We don't want to have to rely on him alone in these moments of despair and difficulty. We'd much rather God just click his fingers and make all the bad stuff disappear. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what we expect? Friends, what is God teaching Moses? And by way of extension, all of us here who have ears to hear it, through this initial encounter at Mount Horeb. Just that... He is all he's revealed himself to be. Faithful, powerful, promise-making, promise-keeping. And the only reasonable, rational response to that kind of God is trusting obedience, even when we don't quite understand, even when we can't quite see from our limited vantage point how this is going to work out well, even when it doesn't match with what I'd prefer or what I expected. Now, friends, we're going to need God's help. (laughs) His divine and direct help to do this. In fact, we'll see this time and time again. It is not for lack of evidence that Pharaoh rejects God. It is not for lack of evidence that Israel failed to trust God in the wilderness. It is not for lack of evidence that Moses is reluctant It's that we desperately need God's divine and direct help to trust him. Yet this is what we can expect when we ask of him. Because he's God and he is. I want to just draw your attention to two verses. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. This is God's promise to save those who seek him. In Joel 2... It is said of Yahweh. Joel 2.32. I didn't write it down. Let me find it quickly in my Bible here. Everyone who calls on the name of, capital L-O-R-D, the word in the Hebrew is Yahweh will be saved. That's the promise of Joel. That at this time when the day of the Lord, when he pours out his spirit on his people, the sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. And everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, the I am, will be saved. Said of God in the Old Testament through Joel. Have a look at what Paul does in Romans 10, verse 13, as he speaks of Jesus. And he says, verse, did I say verse 10? Yeah, chapter 10, verse 13, yeah. For everyone who calls on the name of Lord, that's Jesus, will be saved. Friends, what's your expectations of God? What's your expectations about him? Here's the expectation you can take to the bank. That if you call on his name, if you genuinely seek him and ask him to do the direct and divine work that is necessary so that you will trust him, you can expect him to answer. Now, I want to finish where we started. I want to go back uh, to that popular attempt to disprove God based on a wrong assumption. I want you to have a look back there with me. In fact, it'll come up on the screen. 
Where's the problem there? Where's the one word that needs to be inserted into, uh, into clause three to make this actually make sense? Anyone spot it? Let's have a look there. Here's the first statement again. If the God of the Bible is all-powerful, he would be able to prevent evil and suffering. Is that true? Yes, that's true. Give it a green tick. If the God of the Bible is all-knowing, he would be aware when evil and suffering happen. Is that true? Yes, that's true. Give it a tick. If the God of the Bible is all-loving, then he wouldn't want evil and suffering to happen and would take necessary action to stop it. Is that true? See, there's a problem here. There's a problem here. There is a faulty assumption, expectation that has been smuggled in, which means that though evil and suffering currently exist, that's true, we must not therefore conclude that the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God of the Bible doesn't exist. No. Let's have a look at what it should say. What's, this, what's the one word that in the, as an addition that makes all the difference in statement three? It's the word indefinitely. See, what we can say about God that is true is that if the God of the Bible is all-loving, then he, will, he wouldn't want evil and suffering, suffering to happen. Wow, I've really murdered that, haven't I? If the God of the Bible is all-loving, he wouldn't want evil and suffering to happen indefinitely and would take necessary action to stop it. That's a right statement. And the truth is God has taken action to end the ultimate reign of evil and suffering, and he did it through Christ. God has acted to end evil and suffering. He did it in Jesus' defeat of sin and death on the cross. And this dramatically changes the logical conclusion of this proof, that although evil and suffering still presently exist, we can be sure that God has a right reason to allow this at present. Because he has set a day when he will end it for good when Christ's return. Therefore, the only reasonable, rational response, trusting obedience based on right expectations. No excuses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is uh, much that you have written to reveal yourself to us. Much that we have um, yet to understand in its full implications. And so, Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, do in us what we are unable and unwilling to do ourselves. Help us to adapt or adopt or abandon any expectations that don't match those that you reveal about yourselves. Help us to see that in Christ we have the full fulfillment of your promises, your covenantal promises to Abraham, the ultimate delivery of slaves from sin and death into a right relationship with you forever. And it's through Christ that we get to uh, be guaranteed of that promise. Help us to do this for our good and for your glory in his name. Amen.